Our sermon text this morning is Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. Well, there are a great different variety of stories in the world, many different kinds of stories in the world. And these different kinds of stories uh, that we tell ourselves and one another, these different kinds of stories do different things. Uh, Some stories teach us the truth about the past. Uh, Some are fictional stories that we tell just to entertain or even distract ourselves. Uh, Some stories we tell with a sort of moral lesson in mind. Think of children's stories designed to encourage us to live this way and not that way. Some stories are a form of social critique or political commentary. Uh, Some stories are just expressions of what it means to be a human. They explore who we are and what the world we live in is like. There are many different kinds of stories in the world, but there are no stories quite like the stories in the Bible. Uh, This morning, Our sermon passage from Mark's gospel is just seven short verses uh, that tell a very simple and a very familiar Bible story, uh, the story about Jesus calming the storm. And as I've studied this simple, short Bible story this week, I have been struck by how much is in this story. I've been struck really by how many different things Mark is doing by telling us this short simple story. In this story, Mark is giving us, as we'll see, a true historical record of past events. God willing, we'll see that this account is based on eyewitness testimony of real events. This story also develops the bigger story of Mark's gospel. It is, if you will, a chapter that moves Mark's big narrative forward a little bit. This story is also another tile in the great mosaic that is the Bible's grand story. We'll see that our passage today uh, finds its full meaning in relationship to passages all over the rest of the Bible. Uh, Unmistakably, this is also a theological story. It's a story that shows us who Jesus is. Mark is simultaneously telling us a story and teaching us theology. But maybe the reason that Christians like this story the most is because like so many stories of the Bible, it speaks directly into our hearts and lives. It speaks to us about what it's like to go through the storms of life with Jesus in the boat. So let me read the passage for us, and then I'll pray. So this is Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. It says, on that day, when evening had come, he, that is Jesus, said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, Do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? 
have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? May our gracious God bless the reading and now the preaching of his word. Four points in our outline this morning, four things this story shows us. First, this story shows us that Jesus is for real. Second, this story shows us that Jesus is God. Third, this story shows us that we can trust Jesus. Because fourth, this story shows us what Jesus came to do. I'll give those points to you again as we progress through the sermon. So first point, this story shows us that Jesus is for real. Uh, Lee Strobel was a man born in 1952. He was a Yale-trained lawyer and an investigative journalist. Uh, Lee Strobel's wife became a Christian while he was in his 20s. Uh, Lee Strobel was a professed atheist at the time, and he was at first very skeptical of his wife's faith. But gradually, as his wife's life began to change due to her following of Jesus, Lee Strobel's interest was piqued in his wife's new religion. So Strobel, being an intellectual type, he launched an all-out investigation into the truthfulness of Christianity. And specifically, Strobel investigated the historical reliability of the accounts of Jesus' life that we have in the Bible, in the four Gospels. Uh, The first chapter in the book that Strobel would later write is called The Eyewitness Evidence. Can the biographies of Jesus, the Gospels in the Bible, uh, be trusted? Well, within two years of launching his investigation, Strobel had become a Christian, convinced that the Jesus of the Gospels was for real. You can read about Strobel's discoveries in Franconia Baptist Church Library's copy of The Case for Christ. What we see in this passage is really good evidence that what Mark is writing is rooted in eyewitness testimony of real events that truly happened. So I just want to point out a few features of this passage that show that what Mark is writing here is not a fable, but true history. So first, it's worth noting that Mark is writing about real historical people, most notably Jesus. We have better evidence for the existence of Jesus, the real person who taught in Israel and was crucified by the Romans. We have better evidence for his existence through history than for any other ancient person. It's just not disputed by people who take history seriously whether Jesus in fact existed. It's also noteworthy uh, that people like Peter and James and John, not mentioned by name in this passage, but most definitely in the boat with Jesus as his disciples, these two are real historical people. We have some of their writings. We know how and where many of them died. And Mark would have been writing within the lifetimes of these disciples. More difficult to lie about someone when they're in a position of prominence and still alive. Even more difficult to convince them to embrace your lie as the truth. Mark is writing about real historical people. Let me ask at this point if the AV team can project uh, the map that we have. It's also worth noting that Mark is writing about real historical places. Uh, 
And so Jesus' ministry is conducted, we've seen before, throughout Galilee, this northern region of Israel. Back in chapter 3, we learned that, I don't know if you can see it, but Jesus was most recently teaching in a town called Capernaum on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. For most of chapter 4, Jesus was in a boat, most likely right off the shore of Capernaum, teaching to crowds on the shore. And the first line of our story, Jesus says, let us go across to the other side. Uh, If you read the beginning of chapter 5, what you find is the disciples arrive in the land of the Gerasenes, which indeed is right on the other side of the real historical Sea of Galilee. Uh, Mark is not writing about Tatooine. He is writing about real historical places. You can, thank you. You can take the, well, hold, hold on. Keep the map up for just a second. Third thing to say is that Mark is writing about real historical weather patterns. So the drama in this episode starts with a windstorm on the Sea of Galilee. And this is actually a well-documented phenomenon that happens even today. So Uh, The map doesn't show it, but right around here, if the map extended that far, would be a mountain called Mount Hermon, which is 9,000 feet in elevation. So as you can imagine, the air on the top of Mount Hermon is really cold. Uh, And the Sea of Galilee is actually 700 feet below sea level. Uh, So it's very warm air. And so for reasons known only to weathermen, or to people who paid better attention than me in eighth grade science, uh, when the really cold air from Mount Hermon comes down and swirls and mixes with the warm air over the Sea of Galilee, it can lead to the sudden creation of really violent windstorms. Happens even today. Uh, So the sudden appearance of a storm on the Sea of Galilee comports with what we know, right? This is Uh, real history. Mark is writing about real weather patterns. Of course, the subsiding of this storm very suddenly is a unique miracle. A fourth and most important thing to note in this passage that commends its reliability. Look at all the details of the passage that suggest that what Mark is writing down is rooted in an eyewitness account. A church history would tell us that this is the eyewitness account of the apostle Peter. Look there in verse 36. Verse 36 says that they took Jesus with them in the boat just as he was. That seems to mean that, remember, that Jesus was already on a boat because he'd been teaching from a boat. Uh, That line seems to imply that Jesus didn't get from the boat onto the land and then into another boat. Either they took the boat that Jesus was already in, or Jesus hopped from that boat onto a different boat. They took him just as he was. Also there in verse 36, it says and other boats were with him. So it's unclear whether these boats journey with Jesus through the storm to the other side, or whether these other boats are part of the crowd that Jesus sends away before they uh, depart. But in either case, the uselessness of these facts suggests that this is an eyewitness testimony. Often in biblical narrative, When we get a sort of detail that we don't know why it's there, often it's very significant. Uh, For example, in Acts chapter 5, the mention of the apostles' feet uh, to contrast the gift of Barnabas and the lie of Ananias and Sapphira, the mention of the feet is significant. Well, here, the details seem totally irrelevant. We don't get the doctrine of the other boats from this passage. It just seems like someone is sort of narrating what happened yet and jesus jesus was already in the boat and so we took him just as he was and actually there were other boats 
so you see, it's, it's, a, it's an eyewitness testimony. Look there in verse 37. It says that the waves are breaking into the boat. It doesn't just say, you know, it was a bad storm and they thought they were going to die. This is a memory had by someone who was there, right? Our boat was becoming a bowl of Cheerios, right? Look at verse 41. We get the emotional temperature in the boat after this incident, right? After Jesus calms the storm, after Jesus calms the storm, it says that the disciples are all filled with great fear. Literally, they feared a great fear. How would you know that unless you were or had talked to one of the disciples who was there? We see this all over the Gospels, but uh, scholars have noted that in particular, this story bears the marks of being the fruit of eyewitness testimony. Again, church history says that it's Peter's testimony. So now at this point, there are two very obvious objections to the argument being made. So the first is that Mark is not intending to write history. He is just writing a legend to amp up the glory of his favorite teacher, Jesus, right? Like you might write the legend of Hercules slaying the Nemean lion. Or he's writing a compelling work of fiction, right? You read plenty of details in a Charles Dickens novel, don't you? Well, the response to that is that that doesn't make any literary sense. Uh, there is nothing else like this in ancient literature other than eyewitness reports. So C.S. Lewis, in addition to being an apologetic genius, he was a man thoroughly trained in the history of literature. And this is his comment about the kind of literature that we're getting in the Gospels. Lewis says, I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know, speaking of the Gospels, that not one of them is like this. Of this text, speaking of the Gospels, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage or eyewitness testimony, pretty close up to the facts, or else some unknown writer in the second century without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. That seems, to say the least, highly unlikely. This is clearly not a myth, a legend, or a fiction. It is purporting to report historical events. The second objection you might have to this argument is, well, this is intended to look like an eyewitness account, but it's a lie, right? It's certainly the eyewitness account genre, but it's false testimony. And the response to that objection is that there are all kinds of reasons that that makes no sense. First, this is a small part of the large argument that got the people who propagated this story killed. It seems unlikely that they would have spread this story for the sake of getting themselves killed. And the second thing to say about that is, you know, to be honest with you, I have been dishonest before. There have been times in my life where I have shaded or twisted or hidden the truth, and that's wrong. I don't think that I have ever been dishonest in order to make myself look bad. And that's exactly what this passage does for the disciples. Right? This passage does not cast them in a very positive light. 
Look there in verse 38. What, the, what do the disciples yell in the middle of the storm? And by the way, before I read it, very interesting. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this story, and they all record that the disciples shout something slightly different, which, by the way, is further evidence for the reliability of the Gospels, because if you have multiple witnesses who all on every single point of detail say exactly the same thing, you can bet your bottom dollar that they colluded. And what's more, people are probably shouting lots of different things on the boat. So Matthew records for us that the disciples say, save us, Lord, we are perishing. Isn't that a pious prayer? Save us, Lord. Luke says, master, master, we are perishing. Well, Mark, he kind of airs the dirty laundry, doesn't he? What does Mark say that they say? Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Not a good look for the disciples. Can you imagine Peter narrating this to Mark? And Mark says, okay, so the storm's really bad, the boat's filling. And then what did you say? And Peter turns red. He says, "I, I accuse Jesus of not caring about us, right? Not the kind of lie that you would make up about yourself. Look there in verse 40. Jesus, the Son of God, he says to the disciples, why are you so afraid? That word for afraid there in verse 40 is a different word than the words for fear and afraid that we get in verse 41. The word in verse 40 is often translated cowardly, right? This is not the kind of story that I would make up about myself. The time that Jesus asked me why I was such a coward, right? And then he says, have you still no faith? Think about how important faith is in the gospel of Mark. The first summary of Jesus' teaching, right? The time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand, repent and do what? Believe, right? Have faith, right? A disciple without faith is like like a plumber without a wrench, right? You have no faith. This is not a good look for the disciples in this passage, not the kind of story they would have made up. Mark is not writing a legend. He's not writing fiction. He's not writing a lie, not the kind of lie that the disciples would have embraced and propagated as Holy Scripture. Mark is writing real history. This passage shows us that the Jesus of the Gospels is for real. This this passage bears the marks of reliable eyewitness testimony. A second thing that this passage shows us is that Jesus is God. And not only is Jesus a real historical person, he is God. Uh, Our first point was a look at the passage through the lens of history. Our second point is a look at the passage through the lens of theology. And that's because the life of Jesus is not just a sort of a brute fact or a sort of interesting thing that happened for us to make of it what we will. Uh, The life of Jesus is not sort of a mystery or a puzzle that's left up to us to solve. Uh, In the true history of Jesus' life, what we have is that the God who rules over all of history is revealing himself. Uh, God is teaching us what he's like through his son Jesus as real history unfolds. So Mark is in fact writing true history, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's interpreting that history for us in the language of biblical theology. In other words, Mark is both telling us what happened 
And in the way that he tells us, he's telling us what it means that it happened. So Mark is telling us a story that takes place literally on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Thank you. You can take the, the map down if you like. Or please take the map down. Thank you. So this this story literally takes place on the literal Sea of Galilee. Well, in God's providence, it's no accident that throughout the Bible, the sea is often an image for forces that are threatening and destructive. Think about, as Andrew pointed out for us, Genesis chapter 1, before God brings order and life to creation, what is the earth like? It's formless and void, and the Spirit of God is hovering where? Over the surface of the chaotic waters. God's first act of judgment on humanity is to return to the earth to that chaotic, watery state through the flood. In the Bible's apocalyptic literature, in Revelation and in Daniel, where do the evil beasts that oppose God's kingdom come from? They come from the sea. They come out of the water. The sea, very often in Scripture, is a negative, scary image for destructive, threatening forces. And so, throughout the Bible, it's one of God's signature moves that He is the one who calms chaos of the sea. When the Psalms speak about God's work in creation, Psalms 65, 89, other Psalms, they describe God as the one who stills the raging of the seas. In the book of Revelation, do you remember what's surrounding God's throne in heaven? Remember all the saints are casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea? Why is there a glassy sea in heaven? Is it because bodies of water are evil? That's why? No, it's because the sea where God's rule is has been calmed, right? The sea itself is not evil, but where God's throne is in heaven, it's been made as still as glass. God is the one who calms the sea. Probably the clearest example of this is from our Old Testament reading that Heldana read for us from Psalm 107. That says, for he, the Lord, commanded by his word, and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. In verse 28, then they, the sailors, cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he, the Lord, delivered them from their distress. He, the Lord, made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. In the Bible, it's very clear. God is the one who calms the raging of the sea. Well, in our passage, it's also very clear. Jesus is the one who calms the raging of the sea with his words. Right? Verse 39, the middle of this storm, so big that these professional fishermen think they're going to die. Jesus gets up and the text says he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was, the text says, a great calm. There in verse 37, Mark writes about a great windstorm, he says. There in verse 39, we read about a great calm. And the disciples get it. 
Because in verse 41, we're told that they were filled with a great fear. Literally, they feared a great fear. And why did they do that? Because they'd almost died? Because they'd seen something cool? No, because they had glimpsed the glory of a great Christ. What's the theology revealed in this story? What's the answer to the disciples' question there in verse 41? Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who then is this? This is the God-man, Jesus Christ. Truly man, right? Needing a nap in the boat after a long day of teaching. Truly God, able to rule the sea with his word, equal to the Father and the Spirit in eternity and power and glory. Friend, listen, this is the most important question you'll ever answer. Who then is this Jesus? Is he or is he not the Son of God? Is he or is he not the one to whom you and I, just like the wind and the sea, owe obedience and trust? Who then is this? Christian, it's when we're thinking rightly about that question, who is this? That is when we are filled with what Proverbs calls the beginning of wisdom, which is the fear of the Lord. So a few months ago, I was at a minister's fellowship with a group of pastors. It was a sort of roundtable discussion. Uh, And at the minister's fellowship, there was a pastor, an author, a speaker, a teacher, uh, who was not normally there, but he was a pretty famous Christian pastor. If I said his name, you probably know it. And as we had this discussion, this group of ministers, I hope that we were not sort of fearing this famous minister in an ungodly way. But it was very clear, all of us were very aware of this guy's presence. Even when he was not the one talking, he sort of had our attention. Right? We were very aware and conscious of him. And I don't, I don't think that's 100% wrong because he's a really wise and godly and cool and famous guy. Brothers and sisters, how much more aware, how much more actively conscious should we be as we go through life that Jesus is the God-man? How much more should we be filled with reverential awe at his power and glory in awe that he is the one with the power to stir up and to calm down the storm? that he's the one whose opinion matters, whose help we need. Brothers and sisters, could it be that we have forgotten how big and mighty and glorious Jesus is? The disciples caught a glimpse, and they were filled with great fear. Literally, they feared a great fear. And they did because they perceived what Mark's narrative shows us, which is that Jesus is God. The third thing this story shows us is that we can trust Jesus. Our first point was a look at the text through the lens of history. The second was a look at the text through the lens of theology. The third point is, if you like, uh, an existential view of the text or look at the text through the lens of our everyday experience. At a very simple level, this is a Bible story about disciples of Jesus who find themselves up against a scary problem outside their control. 
right? At least four of Jesus' disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, were professional fishermen. They had spent years on the Sea of Galilee. They would have felt comfortable and at home on the sea. There's no way that this was the first bad storm that these men had been in. And yet this was finally the storm that was too big for them to handle, right? Here in the dark, right? Mark says it was evening, with no land in sight, as the wind is howling and the boat is flopping around like a leaf on the breeze, as wave after wave crashes into this boat and it begins to fill and it begins to lower and lower and lower, it starts to dawn on these men, this is how we die. It's a scary problem outside their control. Brothers and sisters, You know that today, we who follow Jesus still face scary problems outside our control. Medical issues, serious injury, financial troubles, emotional trauma, major career setbacks. In other parts of the world, violent persecution for following Jesus. These and other storms, they threaten to shake up our world at a moment's notice. And when these storms, when these troubles come our way, we can be tempted to the same kind of unbelief that we see from the disciples here in this passage. When the storm is high and we don't know what's going on, and when it seems like Jesus is not doing anything to help us, we can be tempted to think or to say, what the disciples say there in verse 39. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Older theologians used to call these things hard thoughts of Christ. Thoughts that surely the pain and difficulty and uncertainty of what is happening to me mean that God has abandoned me that he does not care, that he is not able or does not love me enough to help me. Surely what is happening to me means that I live under God's frown, if not under his anger. What does this passage say to us, brothers and sisters, when we think this way? What does Jesus say there in verse 40? Jesus says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Look at that little word, still. Have you still no faith? What does that word imply? It means by this time, given how much you've already seen of Jesus, of his love, of his faithfulness, of his power, have you still no faith that he's able, that he's willing to save you? Right, this man who casts out the demons, who heals the lepers, raises the paralytic, who's bringing God's very kingdom. Is it not clear that this man is full of power and compassion to help his people? Isn't it clear that the anointed king of God doesn't die on a boat in the middle of Galilee by accident? All right, Christian, how much have you seen so far? of the grace and power and faithfulness of God, of Jesus. So think for just a second about all of the extravagant grace and kindness of God that you've received in your own life. In spite of all your sins, think about all the goodness 
that God has shown to you. One of the, the lines from the song we'll sing after the sermon it says this, can I doubt his tender mercy who through life has been my guide? Christian, haven't Jesus' dealings with you afforded abundant proof that you can trust him? It's good, it's worthwhile to think on all that we've experienced of Jesus' faithfulness in our own lives, but that's actually not the bedrock reason that we can trust Jesus in the storms of our life. Whatever storm we're in, we know that we can trust Jesus, but it's not because of how things turned out last time. The ultimate reason that we know that we can trust Jesus is our fourth point this morning, which is what Jesus came to do. This story shows us that Jesus is for real, that Jesus is God, and that we can trust Jesus, and that we can trust him because of what he came to do. As we journey through Mark's gospel, even just in these first four chapters, it seems like Jesus is always saving somebody from something. We've met people oppressed by demons, and Jesus saves them. We've met people afflicted by all kinds of terrible, terrible diseases, and Jesus heals them. We've met people enslaved in lives of sin, and Jesus calls them to repentance. These disciples in our passage this morning, they're about to die in a storm, and Jesus saves them. Right? Jesus, who is he so far in Mark's gospel? He's the saving guy. He's the guy who saves you from the big problem that you can't solve. And the Bible makes clear that as Jesus goes about in his ministry saving people from problems, he is pointing us to the big problem from which he came to save his people. So as painful and as terrifying as the storms of life may be, there is a much bigger storm than any of the difficult circumstances that you and I face in life. And the Bible teaches that that storm is the good and righteous anger of God against sin. So let me explain. One of the things that we're often tempted to do when storms come our way, when life doesn't go how we want, we are tempted to be angry at God, even though we wouldn't say it out loud. Because we're tempted to feel like we deserve better than God is giving us. He's not giving us what we're due. And so even though we wouldn't say it like this, the way that we treat other people and the way that we grumble and complain reveals that in our hearts we are angry with God for how things have gone. Right? Don't you hear that in the disciples' question there in verse 38? Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? Jesus, are your original 12 here following you day and night, and you're, you're letting us face this storm? Don't you care? Don't you, aren't you going to give us better than this? Right? When things don't go our way, we're tempted to be angry at God because we feel that he's not giving us what we deserve. Well, here's the problem with that. First of all, God doesn't owe us anything. God is shockingly generous, astonishingly generous, but he is not in our debt. And the second thing, the second problem with our anger with God is this. Think about all the days that God gives us calm, that God gives us sunshine. Think about all the good things that we receive from God's hand, the privileges, the kindness from other people, the opportunities, the health, the joy. All of it is from God. Well, here's our problem. On those days, 
we have not given God what he deserves. We've been ungrateful. We have not listened to what God has told us. We have not done what he has commanded us. We have loved the things that God has given us more than him. We have been self-absorbed and wanted God's glory for ourselves. We've acted like everything that we've received has not been an undeserved gift from God's hand. When the storms of life come, we're tempted to be angry at God because we don't feel that he's giving us what we deserve, but that's exactly wrong. We have not given God what he deserves, and in so doing, we have deserved God's anger against our sin. We have deserved the storm of God's wrath, a much worse storm than we have ever experienced. That is our big problem. That is the thing from which we need most to be saved, the storm of God's good anger against sin. We need someone to still, to calm that storm for us, to obtain for us God's forgiveness and favor. And this story, in the context of Mark's gospel, it points us toward Jesus as the one who is able to do that for us. This story is a hint about what Jesus came to do, to still the storm of God's wrath that we might enjoy the great calm of his favor. Here's what's very interesting. Our story shows us that Jesus is the one who does that, but our story doesn't really tell us how Jesus does that. It shows us that Jesus calms the storm of God's wrath, but not how he does it. There's another storm, a story in the Bible that tells us how Jesus calms the storm of God's wrath against sin. Uh, In this other story, this Old Testament story, there is another storm on the sea, and there is another prophet of God asleep on the boat during the great storm. And that story is from Jonah chapter 1. Jonah and everyone in the boat with him are in danger for their lives from a deadly storm because Jonah has sinned against God. And do you remember what Jonah says will calm the storm? Jonah says, this is my fault. Throw me into the storm and the storm will calm down for you, right? I am the sinner on the boat. Throw me into the storm of God's anger and it will calm down for you. Friends, that's how Jesus calms the storm of God's wrath for us. Jonah says, I'm the sinner, throw me in. Jesus says, you are the sinner, I will go in to the storm of God's wrath. Right On the cross, as Jesus died in darkness, he died under the storm of God's good and righteous and just anger against our sins so that everyone who trusts in Jesus might experience not the storm of God's anger forever and ever, but the calm, the peace of his favor, of his forgiveness. After Jesus died, just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so was Jesus in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, until just like Jonah, God raised Jesus up, and he offers forgiveness, peace, forgiveness, and favor from God to anyone who will trust in him. Friend, listen, let me ask you, 
what's the weather like in your soul right now? What's the weather like in your soul? Right? However turbulent your circumstances might be, do you know a deep peace that comes from knowing that Jesus has calmed the storm of God's wrath and that you live under his favor? By the way, brothers and sisters, that's why we can trust Jesus. Not because of something about our circumstances in the past or the present, but because of what he's shown us in the cross. Christian, if Jesus was in fact willingly plunged into the storm of God's wrath against your sin out of love for you, how could he fail to care for you in the storm that you're going through? Doesn't the cross give you faith that Jesus cares for you in the storm. In our Sunday evening prayer meetings, we're reading through a sermon by Charles Spurgeon about the times that we feel that God refuses to answer our prayers. It's a sermon about the times that we are tempted to feel with the disciples that Jesus doesn't care that we are perishing. Listen to what Spurgeon writes, listen to how he argues with the soul that's having hard thoughts of Christ. Spurgeon says, sinner, you who are seeking Christ, say not that he is harsh, that he will not hear you. Come you with me and look by, look upon him on the cross by faith. Can you behold his thorn crown with its lancets piercing his blessed brow, and the tears streaming down his cheeks already crimsoned with his bloody sweat? Can you see his hands and feet as pierced by the nails they become founts of blood? There he hangs, naked, despised, and rejected of men. Yet he endured all this agony that he might save sinners. Then how can you think so wickedly of him? as to suppose that he has an adamantine or rock-hard heart and no bowels of compassion. No, by his wounds I beseech you to trust him. By his bloody sweat I implore you to continue your supplication unto him. By his rent side I urge you to wrestle with him yet again, for he will hear you. His mercy shall come to you and you shall rejoice in it. In this passage, Jesus rebukes the disciples for their lack of faith. But what is his rebuke but a call to trust in his great love for them? What a glorious Savior. What a wonderful Bible story. Let me pray for us before we sing. Father, thank you that your word shows us that Jesus is really, truly the Son of God, that he is God with power over the storm. Thank you, Father, that you've shown us that we can trust him to care for us, whatever our circumstances. Thank you for how clearly you've shown that to us in the cross. God, I pray that you would teach us to trust him, whatever the storm we're going through. Lord, would you give us faith? and calm that comes from the peace we now have with you through Christ's work. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.